Hi everybody, uh, this is Caroline, Caroline Kitchener. I am an associate editor at The Atlantic. Today for our MassTed conference call, we have John Green on the phone. Uh, welcome, John. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, it's, it's really wonderful to have you here. Um, John is a number one New York Times bestselling author. His book, uh, The Fault in Our Stars, sold over 23 million copies and was made into a uh, pretty major blockbuster movie. Uh, I personally uh, have been reading John Green since I was a freshman in high school. Uh, his book, Looking for Alaska, was one of my favorites. So uh, John is here to talk to us about his most recent book. Uh, that's called Turtles All the Way Down. Um, it's our first official MassTed book club selection. Uh, I'll just read a, a little bit about what the New York Times has to say about it. Um, they say it's, it's far darker than uh, John Green's other books, and I'm quoting here, uh, not so much because of the subject matter, though that's dark too, but because of how he chooses to write about it. This novel is by far his most difficult to read. It's also his most astonishing. So before I say any more, um, I want to quickly remind you of how these calls work. Uh, first. This call is all about your questions. I've collected a couple that people have sent in to me before the call, um, but we'd also love to answer questions submitted in real time. So uh, just to remind you how to do that, you can uh, log in to social.maestroconference.com to give us your questions. Um, there will be a little chat window down at the lower left-hand corner of your screen. Go ahead and click on that and click on the Everyone tab. If you type in questions there, Matt will pass them over to us. You can also email them to Matt at mpeterson at theatlantic.com. Either way, we will get them. Uh, okay, uh, that's, all the, uh, that's all the background. Let's, let's get going. Um, John, could you tell us, start, start us out by giving us a little bit of background about the main character, Aza. What's, what's going on with her? Sure, I say her name Aza, but books belong to their readers. So Aza. Well, no, my pronunciation is better than yours. They're both legitimate. Um, it's just I'm just going to say that because I'm used to saying it. But um, uh, cool. so she has, um, uh, I guess, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's never uh, stated outright in the book, or it's never named in the book. But that's um, that she really struggles with these obsessive thought spirals and. She's a 16-year-old who's trying, insofar as possible, to have a, have a normal life. Um, you know, she wants to be a, a, a kind of the protagonist of her own story, the way that I think most most of us do when we're teenagers. And she's also always trying to situate herself in, inside of certain kinds of stories, or trying to understand what kind of story um, she's in, what kind of what kind of person she is, what kind of life she has. Um, but the problem is that each time she tries to settle into an understanding of herself, um, that understanding of herself is undermined by these obsessive thought spirals that seem to come from outside of her and that make her feel like maybe she, um, you know, isn't, isn't real or at least that she isn't uh, driving the ship of, of, or steering the ship of her consciousness. So I, one of the things that really struck me about the book was that it was written in, in first person and you really, and this is something that a lot of our members picked on too, you just you, you so effectively take us into Aza's mind um, and, and, 
and allow us, you know, even if you know we don't have experience with with what she's going through, to really experience it with her. Um, so I'd love for you to to read a to read an excerpt from the book to get us going. Sure. Yeah. This is from near the end of the book, but um, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, I checked the light under the door to make sure Mom had gone to sleep, and then snuck over to the bathroom. I changed the band-aid carefully, looking carefully at the old one. There was blood. Not a lot, but blood. Faintly pink. It isn't infected. It bleeds because it hasn't scabbed over, but it could be. It isn't. Are you sure? Did you even clean it this morning? Probably. I always clean it. Are you sure? Oh, for fuck's sake. I washed my hands, put on a new Band-Aid, but now I was being pulled all the way down. I opened the medicine cabinet quietly, took out the aloe-scented hand sanitizer. I took a gulp and another. Felt dizzy. You can't do this. This shit's pure alcohol. It'll make you sick. Better do it again. Poured some more of it onto my tongue. That's enough. You'll be clean after this. Just get one last swallow down. So I did. Heard my gut rumbling. Stomach hurt. Sometimes you clear out the healthy bacteria and that's when C. diff comes in. You've got to watch out for that. Great. You tell me to drink it and then you tell me not to. Back in my room, sweating over the covers, body clammy, corpse-like, can't get my head straight. Freaking hand sanitizer is not going to make you healthier, you crazy fuck. But they can talk to your brain. The bacteria can tell your brain what to think, and you can't. So who's running the show? Stop it, please. I tried not to think the thought, but like a dog on a leash, I could only get so far from it before I felt the strangling pull against my throat. My stomach rumbled. Nothing worked. Even giving in to the thought had only provided a moment's release. I returned to a question Dr. Singh had first asked me years ago, the first time it got this bad. Do you feel like you're a threat to yourself? But what's the threat and what's the self? I wasn't not a threat, but I couldn't say to whom or what the pronouns and objects of the sentences muddied by the abstraction of it all, the word sucked into the non-lingual way down. You're a we, you're a you, you're a she, an it, a they, my kingdom for an I. I felt myself slipping too, but even that's a metaphor, descending, but that is too. Can't describe the feeling itself except to say that I'm not me, forged in the smithy of someone else's soul. Please just let me out. Whoever is authoring me, let me up out of this. Anything to be out of this. But I couldn't get out. Three flakes, then four arrive, then many more. Mm. Um, that last bit is a... In the last two paragraphs... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, two, sorry, there's two... Um, quotes that are referenced earlier in the book. Uh, one is, um, there's, a, there's a part of Ulysses where, uh, at the end, where Molly Bloom says, oh, Jamesy, let me up out of this, which is sometimes thought of as like the first metafictional moment in literary history because the, the character Molly Bloom seems to be aware of her author. And then that three flakes, then four arrive, then many more line I stole from Edna St. Vincent Millay, but I referenced it, so it, 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 I think it's okay. Um, I also stole the forged in the smithy of someone else's soul from, that's one of the last lines of, uh, or to play on one of the last lines of uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. So, man, wow. I've never read that part that's out loud. Cool. I didn't know that. It was weird to read it out loud. <laughs> well, I thought, I, I was really struck by this passage. I, I, I found it really powerful. Um, and I think for everybody who you know doesn't have the book in front of them like we do, um, it's it's helpful to note that 
you know, interspersed throughout this passage, there are, um, you know, sentences and questions that are in italics, and, and you really get the sense that um, Aza is battling with her own mind here. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, I mean, what, what's going on? What, what is she, um, what's, the, what's the conflict here? What's going on inside her head? Well, I mean, what I wanted to do in the book, most of all, uh, was to find some kind of direct expression for the experience of um, intrusive thoughts or of uh, dusiveness. Um, and, and that meant that metaphor wasn't going to be sufficient, you know, like I, it, it wasn't going to be sufficient for me to say what it was like. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to try to find a way to say something of what it is. And the, mm -hmm. the italics, um, the kind of italicized intrusions in, in that passage and a few others are, are intended to, to try to reflect that uh, something of, of that experience. Um, and then the, but then also like the whole shape of, of the, the book is hoping to do that as well, you know, like by trying to have like this mystery novel that like keeps getting interrupted and like doesn't ever get to become a mystery novel because this girl's mm -hmm. like thoughts are, um, are so overwhelming to, to her and to the story. And so I want, that was like one of the ways I guess that I was trying to try to speak directly about it. And even in that passage, Aza is struggling with the fact that, um, she can find metaphorical language for it, but she can't find a direct form for it. And, and that's, Part of, I mean, I, I have OCD and, and, and pretty severe uh, anxiety problems, and I think that's part of what I find so frustrating about it is that language always, uh, it always comes up short in the face of pain. You know, there's so much the language is great at, and I, and I, I, I love language, but it, it, does, it does really, really struggle um, when it comes to describing and sharing pain, and, and that's, that's part of, I think, what makes, makes pain so isolating. Yeah, and she really struggles throughout the book to, to convey, even she has these really strong relationships, but it's really hard for her to articulate this. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I wanted to ask you, yeah, it's really tough. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, I, I, she, Ava is particularly concerned about bacteria and something called C. diff throughout the whole book. Can you say a little bit about what that is and and, and, and why that triggers her anxiety so intensely? Yeah, C. diff is, um, is a bacterial infection that, that can happen. It usually happens after uh, a course of antibiotics. Um, a lot of the, you know, antibiotics sometimes can kill good bacteria as well as the bad bacteria, the infection it's trying to, they're trying to pinpoint. And then Occasionally, this bacteria called C. diff will grow out of control, and, and it can be very, very serious. Um, it, it can lead to um, extreme uh, diarrhea and dehydration, and um, it can, in, in some cases, be fatal, and it can also be hard to treat because the treatment for it is actually more antibiotics, um, and we don't have, uh, we're actually getting better treatments for it, but um, it, it's an, it, it, it's a reasonable thing to be freaked out about, I think, if you're um, uh, hospitalized and um, on a, or on a long-term course of antibiotics. It's not a reasonable thing for Aza to be freaked out about. But the problem is that she can never quite, um, you know, she, she can never 
I, I think this is, I, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist by any stretch of the imagination, but my experience with um, obsessiveness is that um, it, 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 has to, it has to come from a place that logic can't quite touch uh, or logic can't quite mm-hmm. fix. And she can never quite close the loop because she can never be sure that she isn't on the edge of being overwhelmed by uh, bacterial infection. Because, you know, the truth is bacteria are all around us and half of the cells inside of your body are not you, they're bacteria. And if you, um, and it's true that the bacteria in your gut probably can talk to your brain. And that means that they can tell your brain some of the things that your brain thinks. And, um, and so all that, you know, she's not wrong about any of that. What she's wrong about is um, the appropriate response to that, I guess. Right. And how does that, how does this obsession with C. diff impact her relationships and and her, her, you know, kind of day-to-day life? Yeah, I think... um, I think the biggest way it affects her relationships is that it makes her really um, unobservant. Like I kind of wanted, there's a long history of detectives in fiction who are obsessive and their obsessiveness makes them really good detectives. And that is not my experience with obsessiveness at all. Like it makes me a really bad detective. Like I can't pay attention to anything outside the the universe of myself. And so I guess I wanted to, um, I wanted to show some of the ways that it, it can be so frustrating and, and upsetting not to, because, you know, you aren't, or at least Aza is not, um, she is not as um, empathetic as she needs to be. She's not able to pay attention to the, or, or meet the needs of her best friend or her mother or her boyfriend in the ways that, that she wants to. And, and, and because, you know, so much of her consciousness is constantly occupied by this fear that never, um, that, 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 you know, she can never be far from. Like, I, I, you know, when she talks that in that passage that I just read, like she talks about it as, um, you know, a, a, being a dog on a leash and you can only go so far from the thought. And uh, that, that is definitely something that uh, I think she struggles with throughout the, uh, throughout the story. Yeah. Um, so we've got a question from John. Um, he asks, you know, he says, often, in order to reach in to touch our pain, a safe environment and an ability to be vulnerable are necessary. Does Aza have either? Uh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I do think that it's really hard. Um, it's hard to look directly at, at your own pain sometimes if you feel like you don't have that safety or you don't have the support for it. And one of the things I did, I I wanted Aza to have, you know, more support than even maybe the average, um, the average person who's struggling uh, with this does. And, you know, because she has access to not like amazing medical care, like she has a psychiatrist, but she doesn't have like weekly therapy sessions or anything. But she has access to pretty good mental health care compared to, um, unfortunately, I think what is the average for um, for Americans. Um, and so, you know, I wanted, and I and she has, and her mother, you know, obviously cares about her a lot, and and she has a best friend who cares about her a lot, and it can be exhausting for both the mother and the best friend and anybody in Aza's life to spend time with her, but they're still largely um, kind to her, 
And I, that was, I guess, one of the reasons I wanted her to have that in her life was so that um, so that we could kind of see more, see her pain more directly, and not um, not have her like trying to uh, bottle it down. I mean, that's one of the challenge, you know, one of the challenges of writing about um, uh, writing from inside of a char- one character's perspective is that you you, you can't show Aza as other people are experiencing her, um, or at least not directly, mm-hmm. and um, but I wanted her to have empathetic people around her, in part because that makes, that solved a lot of problems for me as a writer, but also because, it's, you know, it, it made made things possible for Aza that I, I think otherwise might not have been. Well, I was so, I was really interested um in in the fact that the three main players in in Aza's life, her mom, Daisy, and Davis, they all respond to her mental illness in very different ways. Uh, one tries to fix it. One is brutally honest um, at times, and one just mostly kind of rolls with it. Um, and you know, I'm wondering, you know, why did you why did you decide to show that range of reactions and as somebody who suffers from mental illness yourself, you know, for, for, from from these same kinds of things, what do you think is the most effective? Because um, I know, you know, a, a, a lot of masthead members in the conversations that we've had have have asked, you know, how do you if you if you have somebody in your life who's very close to you who who struggles with this kind of thing, what do you do? Yeah, I mean. It's hard. It's really hard. Um, and one of the things I wanted to write about was how painful it is for people who love, you know, for, for, to, to, to see someone you love suffering so much and not be able to take that pain away and not not really know how to respond to it even. Um, um, yeah, and I, I think it's hard. I'm not an expert in this by any means, and, like, I don't think that I should be dispensing uh, st- psychological advice, but my personal experience has been that um, uh, I guess the people in, in, in my life, the most effective people are the people who roll with it, but who are also um, reassuring, you know, um, and, and who uh, reassure me that, um, uh, that even though it is difficult to live with this and to you know love someone who's living with this that there's also a lot of things about um you know caring about me that are very rewarding and there are lots of times when i am able to um to care for people in ways that are that are deeply meaningful to them and important to them and 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 you know that that when i'm sick and not able to do that as well they um you know that they're they're patient with me and they know that there's another there's going to be an, an other side to this. And that's one of the things that I think is so, it's so hard, like in the middle of, in the middle of one of these experiences, you feel like it's going to be forever. Like you feel like you, you, there's no escape from it and there never will be an escape from it. And then um, because, you know, almost all mental illness is treatable uh, you know, eventually things do get better usually for most people and, um, over, over time, sometimes over a long period of time. And then, um, and I guess that's one of the things I wanted to, I I wanted to, to write about, like I wanted to, especially with the end, like I wanted to write about the fact that, um, for me at least like living with chronic 
mental health problems, it's much more like a sine wave than it is like a straight line. And, and it, it's, but it is, I think, like a sine, uh, I was about to say it's like a sine wave that slowly goes toward healthier. But then I, I don't think I can say that, actually. I wish I could say that. That would be a nice thing to be able to say, but I don't think, I don't, I don't know that that's true. So I'm not going to, I'm going to go ahead and not say that. It's complicated. Yeah, um, I mean, it's hard. And I, but I also think, like, I think be, being reassured, I find being reassured that people uh, care about me, even though I'm difficult to be around when I'm sick, is very, um, I, I, that, that is helpful. So we've got this question from, from Lucy. Um, she wants to know, how does shame affect and complicate mental illness, both for Aza and in your own experience? Oh yeah, I mean it has a tremendous impact. Like I, I've really struggled with this. Like it's hard for me to talk about. I can't talk directly about my own, um, um, the sort of locuses of my own OCD. Partly because of, uh, partly because I'm embarrassed about it. Partly because it just feels too exposing. But, um, but yeah, I mean I've really struggled with feeling embarrassed about it, and also just like, I mean there's an element of. I remember when I was a little kid. Um, and I was, I, I, I had this, uh, obsessive belief that I was the only person and everybody around me was, um, uh, was like an alien. And I was, uh, part of this like huge conspiracy, like to w see what would happen to a human child if you exposed them to a certain set of circumstances. And my parents were aliens and my brother was an alien and my teachers and all my classmates were aliens, etc. And I would worry about this all the time. And of course, there was. I, and I would then I would try to like check and see if they were really aliens and try to prove to myself that they weren't. And it just. I mean, I would lose hours every day to this stupid alien thing. Um, and it's embarrassing because like it's so narcissistic, you know. <laughs> like I mean, it's like mm -hmm. it's, it is shameful to be that incredibly nar. I, or I find it shameful to be that incredibly narcissistic and like unable to get over it. And I remember someone saying to me at one point, like when I was, um, I was talking to them about it for like the billionth time. There's a friend, like a, you know, one of my closest friends when I was like eight or nine or whatever. And he said, just stop thinking about that. And like, I'm so sympathetic. I, I, people often like criticize, criticize that as a response, but like, I'm so sympathetic to it because like, it would that of course that's what a normal person would say like because that's what the normal person would do would be like well, just that's stupid let's stop thinking about it um, but I you know I find it impossible to stop thinking about that's the whole problem right is that I can't stop thinking about something and that's Aza's whole problem too um, I think that uh, a lot of that some of that comes from the stigmatization of mental illness that like people once they talk about having a mental illness like are often treated differently um, in their professional lives and that's a big problem uh, and I think what an ongoing problem I hope that it's getting better and that more people are understanding that you can live with chronic mental illness and have a rich and fulfilling professional and personal life um, and that, that that's actually the rule I think uh, more than than the exception um, but I think some of it is because some of it is, for me at least, is internalized. Like, and and, and I, I wanted Aza, you know, Aza to struggle um, from the inside with trying to convince herself that she wasn't, um, you know, she wasn't a bad person just because she struggled to 
be a lot of the things that we associate with good people. You know, she struggles to be empathetic. She struggles to pay attention to other people. And it's because she's so sucked into this, you know, tightening whirlpool of her, of her own thoughts that, um, that it is really difficult for her. But that doesn't mean that she's uh, bad or that she's shameful or, 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 or anything like that. Um, but I do think that, uh, for me at least, that there is a huge interplay there. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean like, probably other, like this. Yeah, go ahead. The only other thing I'd say about that is, like, she's tremendously embarrassed about drinking hand sanitizer, right? Because, like, she knows that's super weird, and she knows it's wrong, and she knows it's, like, fucked up. Um, and, but, like, being embarrassed doesn't get her closer to wellness. And that's the, yeah, that's, I think that's a true thing for, for me too. Yeah. Then we have to watch her go through this horrible experience of having her best friend write about her in a fan fiction, disguising her as a character, but, 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 but really writing probably all of the things that she fears are true about herself. And having to read right. that, I mean, that was that was probably the hardest part of the book for me to read. I just can't, I can't imagine um, what what that would be like. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's, um, yeah, it is. But I, I think it's, I, I think from Aza's perspective, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a crappy thing to do. There's no question about it. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it was interesting for me writing about that because, of course, like, I fictionalize people in my own life all the time, and, like, I take stuff from people who are around me all the time, and I don't feel particularly guilty about it because, uh, you know, uh, I, even when I probably should feel guilty about it, I don't because I, whatever serves the book, you know, is I want to, within reason, I don't want to, like, you know, I don't want to hurt my family or anything but like i will i will i will you know steal when i when it suits me um and so i i had a lot of empathy for daisy in that because i can i i see how that stuff happens um and i see how it gets out of gets out of control um and also it was it was a way of pro for her it was a way of processing the difficulty of loving Aza um, in a way that seemed extremely safe because she knew or thought she knew that Aza would never, um, would never read her stories. And so I think yeah. it was a huge betrayal, but it was also, um, I don't know, from my perspective, I, I, I see how it happens. Yeah. Um, so you've mentioned a couple of times this idea of this, this whirlpool of thoughts, this whirlwind of thoughts spinning around. Um, and we've got this question from Jason. He says, I have social anxiety with accompanying depression. I think the author really captures what it's like to have ruminating thoughts. He uses the imagery of the spiral to effectively symbolize how anxious, depressive, and anxious or depressive thoughts feed on each other, closing in tighter and tighter until one wants to jump out of her own skin. Um, so I'm wondering, can you explain the concept of spiral, of that spiral, of spiraling, th spiraling thoughts, and how you arrived at it? Yeah. So in the book, there's actually they, they talk about this Raymond Pettibon painting, um, 
that has a has a spiral in it, and that's a real painting. And um, I saw it at an art art show in Miami. Um, I'd never had that language before for it. For I'd never had the idea of a spiral for the experience of intrusive thoughts. I mean, the, the what I'd had before that was um, the the three flakes, then four arrive, then many more. Th- this idea that you know you have one thought, it's just a little thought, and then then you start to be like, oh crap, because like that thought starts to spread very quickly, like an in invasive weed or, or like, uh, you know, it, what, what starts off as one snowflake soon becomes this like blinding blizzard. And, um, and, and it becomes the only thought that, that you can have and, and a thought that you really can't, um, can't get out of. And it's really, it's really scary. I mean, I, I, anybody, um, anybody who's had the experience of not being able to choose their own thoughts knows that it's super scary um, and, and difficult and pain, painful, really psychically painful. Um, and when I saw this painting, I just, uh, I just thought like, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what it feels like. And then I thought about the fact that a spiral, when it starts to uh, tighten, it never ends. You know, it just, it, 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 it gets, it can get tighter infinitely. Um, and, and so that, um, that was also really, uh, powerful for me in, in trying to just talk about my own experience to people I love, um, talking about the fact that, you know, when I fall, when I get into these thought spirals, like it's not that, um, I can't get out of them for a while. It's that it feels like I can't get out of it ever because I'm going, because this thing is going to tighten forever. Um, uh, until until I die, until it, it it kills me, and that um, that's you know that's really it's really scary. And you capture that really effectively through her um, through the fact that it is first person. I mean, was that ever a question for you that you would write from her perspective? Um. N- no, I wanted to. Yeah. I, I, from the beginning, it was first person. I mean, I remember uh, I was writing a different story when I started writing this one, and I wrote it in, I was like, I just opened like a Gmail draft window and didn't put anybody in the two line and just started writing um, about Aza and Daisy and about the idea of sort of internet detectives. And then, and, and, and for, for me, it was almost immediately a way of, you know, writing about this, this girl who was um, struggling with, with thought, struggling to feel uh, a secure sense of self um, because, of, because of thought. And I think it was, I think, I think even that first day of writing that happened all inside that Gmail, Gmail window was, was in first person. So I don't think it was ever a question. I mean, I did want to uh, switch to second person a few times. Like there are a few points where she switches to second person for um, several paragraphs, and that you know I I wanted to do that because I wanted to try to get um, you know two reasons I guess one like those are pla- those were places where she almost can't talk about herself and she has to start talking about. Um, someone else or, 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 or an, uh, a sort of generic someone. And then secondly, in the hopes that like, you know, I would put you, 
you, Caroline, you, the reader, inside that um, inside that experience. Yeah. So, I mentioned this to you a little bit before, um, but we, we chose this book for our first Masthead Book Club because, as a group, we've been talking a lot about mental illness. Uh, I, I was pretty blown away a couple of weeks ago when, uh, in our Facebook group, one member totally unprompted, shared her own personal experience with bipolar disorder. And then in response, many, many other members followed up with their own stories. It, it just seems to me that this is one of those taboo topics that becomes a lot less taboo when just one person opens up about it. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. have, you found, have you found that as you've been traveling around and talking about this book all over the country? Yeah, it's, um, I think you're right that it's it, it, it's hard to talk about until people are talking about it and then um, and then it feels like a huge at least for me like a huge relief uh, to be able to talk about it and and also to not feel alone in it I mean one of the one of the terrifying things about about it for me is is feeling alone feeling like um, you know I'm I'm stuck with these these feelings that are extremely painful and that I can't, that I can't communicate well. And, and for a long time, I mean, I didn't know that I, I had OCD and, and um, for a long time, I, I just thought that I really did think that I was a, like the only person. <laughs> it sounds silly, but like I thought I was the only person who felt this way and, and who experienced, you know, this, this extreme level of um, discomfort with, within myself or, or, you know, the inability to feel like a self within myself. And um, I, I uh, you know, wasn't. Um, and th there was a lot of relief in that. Like, I remember the first time I read a book about OCD, I was like, oh, my God, like, this person is so incredibly brave to be talking about this stuff without any embarrassment. Yeah. Like, it's a totally normal yeah. thing to have. Um, and I still like I still go back to that book. It's called The Man Who Couldn't Stop by uh, by David Adam. And I still feel like really unalone in the face of it. So I did. You know, I, I hoped that this story would, um, you know, make people who or help people who feel um, feel this stuff feel less alone in it, but also that it would help people. Um, who don't uh, maybe understand a little bit more of, of, of what it's like, you know, to, to live with with psychic pain. Yeah. Uh, Rachel is wondering, um, is it therapeutic for you to write about these issues through fiction? Uh, that's, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think um, it didn't, I kind of hoped that it would like cure me somehow and it didn't, um, mm -hmm. which is a bummer. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I think that it was, I couldn't, I, I mean, I, I couldn't write about it when I was really unwell. Like I can't write anything when I'm, when I'm really unwell or even read or whatever. But, um, but I think the one way that it has, has helped me um, at least a little bit, I think is that when I was writing the story, I felt a lot of uh, felt bad for Asa, you know, I felt a lot of pity for her and I, and I felt like she wasn't bad or evil or, um, you know, or, or anything like that. And, um, I have often struggled to feel that way toward myself. I, I've often struggled to be as uh, compassionate toward myself. And, and I think in, in writing about her and, and feeling a, a, a kind of deep well of compassion for her, I, um, I did, I did discover a, a little bit more, um, compassion for myself, I guess. Yeah. 
Hmm. So Megan, um, Megan has a question about how this book can be used to help other people. Um, I'm not sure if this is something you've thought about, but she, she wants to know how can educators use this book to engage in an effective examination of mental health concerns, particularly of anxiety, with students and even other educators or counselors and with families. She says, um, I often find those who work with adolescents to be fearful of talking about mental health. Do you think yeah. that this book could be used as a tool? Well, I mean, I that's that's up to readers in the end, not to me, but that would certainly make me happy. I mean, I think, it, you know, a lot of times adults are worried about talking about mental health to teenagers because they may not feel like they're experts, and um, and they may feel like they might make things worse. And it's it, and like I feel that way. I I am completely sympathetic to that. Like I worry about that a lot, and I certainly, you know, don't want to. Um, don't want to give bad advice or, or, or point people in the wrong direction. And I mean, that's something I spent a lot of time worrying about when I was writing the book and thinking about how to write the book. Um, I, you know, I, I think that um, what we know what we're doing is not working, right? Like um, not what Megan in particular is doing, but like what we're doing as a social order isn't working um, because while life is, is getting better by almost every measure, um, you know, lives are lives are are longer. They're healthier, um, physically healthier. Um, the, you know, absolute poverty is is dramatically lower. Uh, you know, in most ways, life around the world is getting better. And one of the few ways that life around the world is definitely not getting better is that we are not seeing any um, reduction in rates of uh, self harm, and um, and we're not seeing and in many cases, we're seeing suicide rates go up. And uh, and so I, I think we aren't paying, in general, nearly enough attention to mental health. We don't um, we don't treat it as the priority that that we ought to treat it. Um, you know, and uh, and and I think some of that is because of stigma. Some of that is because of shame. Some of it is for fear of um, for fear of doing the wrong thing. Uh, but I think we need to uh, we need to you know, have bigger conversations and, and include experts in those conversations. So what I always say is, I think it's like, you know, is, is that to talk to whether it's a guidance counselor at the school or um, if the school has, because I know some schools do now have um, full-time uh, trained psychologists uh, to, to include those people in the conversations around, um, around the book, because uh because I don't, because I don't feel qualified to, to do it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I certainly felt like this book would help um, if you were going through this, or, or somebody that you knew was going through this. Um, so we've got a question from Lynn. Lynn says that she is extremely impressed by how well you seem to nail the teenage mind, and I have to say. I absolutely agree with that. Um, I really, really felt like I was in a teenager's head, and I had to keep reminding myself, John Green is not a teenager. <laughs> um, no. So, you know, so how do you how do you write about teens so effectively when you know it's 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 been a while since you were a teenager? A long while, yeah, half my life, more than half my <laughs> life. Um, yeah, I mean, I think when I wrote Looking for Alaska. You know, I still felt like a young adult in a lot of ways. Like I, I felt like I was, um, I felt like I was closer to to being in high school than I was to being a proper grown up. That's for sure. Um, 
but you know, as as I've gotten older, uh, I feel you know now I, I I feel almost no connection to my to my teenage self. Um, you know, that person is a strange and foreign land for me, um, and I think back to the things I liked and the things that I cared about, and they're so different from the things I care about now, and and um, even the way I um, the way I conceptualize my problems but um yeah so i i don't think that i i don't think that my writing sounds like teenagers really um but well <laughs> let, let me change that i'm absolutely positive that my writing doesn't sound like teenagers like i didn't know much about teenage slang when i was a teenager and i certainly don't know much about it now but the thing that um the thing that like has continued to interest me is how teenagers approach big questions, like questions about self and meaning and suffering and, um, and, and the, because they're like looking at those questions as sovereign beings separate from their parents for the first time in a lot of cases, it's really interesting. And I think like that's what I've tried to hold on to. Um, yeah. And so if it, yeah. you know, then that, that's, that's what I find interesting. And then the, other, the only other thing I'd say is that I try, to, I try as much as possible in my writing and also outside of writing, actually. Um, to, the other thing that I think is really interesting and cool about teenagers is that they are doing a lot of things for the first time, and so they are um, excited about them. And they are not... Teenagers have a reputation for being, like, jaded and cynical, but in fact, like, I find them, like, wondrously lacking in cynicism and, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and like, wondrously earnest in, in their um, unironized emotional experiences and, and everything. And that is one of the things that I, I really like. So I try to remember that when you're doing something for the first time, if, whether you're falling in love for the first time, whether you're, like, grappling with, um, you know, one of these, in Aza's case, with this, like, crippling, destabilizing mental, mental illness um, for the first time, um, it, it has an intensity uh, to it that... Um, that the second time just doesn't have. And I find that if you can hold on to, uh, to some of that emotional intensity, um, if you can hold on to some of that, um, that unironic um, enthusiasm and, and passion and interest and attentiveness, um, it's pretty useful like in writing, but definitely also in, uh, just, in, just in life. So along those same lines, um, Megan, wants to know um, who is your target audience if you have one are you you know the, your, your books are called young adult books but I, I, I don't know I, I know a lot of adults who, who really enjoy them Megan you know says she, she's an adult she really enjoys them um, yeah. do you feel that you you write for one audience or you know or pretty much anybody I used to feel really strongly that I that I wrote for teenagers, and I used to find adult readers pretty uninteresting, um, <laughs> uh, to be honest with you. But that has changed as I have uh, become more of an adult and have become more in favor of adulthood. <laughs> like, um, and suddenly, also, I think like my last two books, like I care a lot more about the adult characters. It's probably pretty obvious that I care a lot more about the adult characters, and a lot of times, like, uh, in in both turtles all the way down the full their stars like I find myself like thinking wait, wait a second Aza your mom might have a point here let's listen to her for a minute yeah um, well I love I the mom I love the mom in turtles all the way down she was yeah, she's so I mean, sweet and caring and you know I wanted her to yeah, be my mom, mom too 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, she desperately wants to wants to help. She just, you know, sometimes that's that's unhelpful. Um, and yeah, that's yeah. like one of the one of the great ironies I think of like parenting a teenager is that uh, you you know you want to save them from all of this stuff that you just can't save them from uh, for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons. But yeah, I think um, I, I I really like having a, a, adult readers, and I'm very grateful um, for for that. And I I like um, I and I, I I so I don't think that I I don't really um, I don't care as much about demographics. Um, as I as I used to, and I guess to me the books are for whomever uh, likes them. Cool. Um, so uh, going in a slightly different direction, um, we had a conversation on our Masthead Facebook group about gender in this book. Um, for the first couple of pages, I actually wasn't sure whether our narrator, whether whether Aza was male or female, um, and a couple yeah. of our members had the same experience. Although. One member did find a reference to boob sweat on page three, so <laughs> or page seven. <laughs> um, so so she uh, she corrected us there. But um, Craig, one of our one of our master members, you know, he he mentioned that gender is typically a trait that that authors dwell on um, at the beginning of books, and so we're wondering, yeah. um, were you intentionally vague about about Aza's gender at the beginning? Um, and and Craig would also like to know, you know, why you decided to make her a girl. Um, especially after you know having so many similar experiences yourself as a male writer, was that a challenging decision? I think part of it was probably um, you know creating distance. I mean, there are a lot of ways that I wanted to create distance between Asa and me, so that the novel could be a novel and not um, not a, a memoir or a fictionalized memoir or anything like that. And um, and so I, I think that was probably part of it. And then. Also, you know, the obsessive detective trope uh, tends to be a pretty um, pretty patriarchal one, I think, from Sherlock to Monk, um, both of which I like, but I also think, you know, uh, have their strengths and weaknesses like anything. And, um, but yeah, I, I mean, as far as um, whether I was intentionally vague about establishing her gender, I... I um I was I was definitely intentionally vague about establishing everything all the sort of identifiers about her um outside of her experience of self and gender is is part mm-hmm. of her experience of self but it it's so dominated by the this particular um uh, the 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 particular microbial makeup of her of her body um and of herself rather than the 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 you know, like genetics of the cells that she would call hers, um, and that was that was intentional. You know, Aza doesn't ever really um, describe what she looks like, um, and she doesn't seem to spend a lot of time thinking about uh, what she looks like or anything, um, because she's so obsessively worried about the cells inside of her that aren't hers, that aren't, um, you know, that that don't. Don't reflect anything about her um, her gender or even her body. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so, a, a question from Thomas. Um, Thomas. Thomas wants to know: once you're down in the hard details of creating something, 
how do you keep yourself going without anxiety robbing your motivation? Um, that's something that, that he personally struggles with a lot. So, mm-hmm. so he's wondering you know, how, how, you, how you manage to, to, to write and, and complete books. Yeah, I mean, it took six years, so I'm not that great at it. Um, and I, I know, I think I know what, um, I think I know that experience. And um, and I don't have, uh, I wish I had like a magic key to solve it, but I don't. I think um, part of it for me is, is trying to every day give myself permission to suck, give myself permission to be bad um, and understanding that, I am, you know, I am living inside of one day of a process that will be many months or or many years, and um, and so, you know, if nothing that get, gets written today ends up in the finished book, that's not really a catastrophe because it's not about today; it's about all of the days um, added up together. Um, but, you know, to be honest, like I thought. Uh, for a long time, I, I did not. I, I thought I, I I just figured that I wouldn't publish this, or that I would publish, or that I would mm. publish it under a different name, um, and that's kind of how I guess I tricked myself into writing it um, was by telling myself that I didn't have to publish it if I didn't want to, and I didn't have to show it to anyone if I didn't want to, and I didn't have to. Um, I didn't have to put my name on it if I didn't want to, and uh, that was pretty liberating for me. We had a uh, we had a masthead conversation with uh, Scott Stossel, who uh, the, our mm-hmm. uh, head editor at the magazine, who wrote My Age of Anxiety, and he said a very similar thing about his book. Um, that yeah. know, the only way that he he got through writing it was to you know kind of convince himself that it would never really get published, which I thought was really <laughs> that's a great book again, about anxiety. That, yeah, it, no, it really is, and it's it's another one that that's helped a lot of people. Um, so uh, let, let's uh, let's wrap things up here. Um, I've got one one question from Julie that goes in a very different direction. Uh, Julie wants to know, and and John, feel free to give a little bit of context here. What on sure. earth is a twitara, and how did you learn about it? Yeah, so there's a twitara in the book. Um, so like, oh, Tuatara. Okay. Just uh, okay. It's again. Actually, that I guess has a pronunciation. <laughs> I think, but I might be mispronouncing. That has a real. That has a real way of pronouncing it. I don't know much about this animal, um, except for you know what I learned in my research. But um, but right, so there's a Tuatara in the book. Like the book wanted, like you know, like the idea was that these characters want to be characters in a madcap uh, mystery, but they can't be because. of is his brain problem and the madcap mystery is that uh, there's this billionaire um, who's, uh, who's, who's publicly announced in the event of his death he's leaving his, his entire estate to the benefit of one particular to Atara um, which is this really weird animal uh, maybe the weirdest animal on earth right now uh, to Atara have not changed much in the last 150 million years they're, they're much older than um, they're much older than uh, almost any other, yeah, almost any other terrestrial vertebrate. Um, but also, they're extremely genetically uh, weird. Like they are the only uh, animal in their entire order. Uh, they are the only species left in their entire order. So they look exactly like lizards. Like they look like an iguana or something. But they are about as closely related 
to, to lizards as uh, crocodiles are related to birds. That's how genetically distinct they are. Um, they live for like 200 years, um, which if you're a billionaire who wants to years? make sure that... Yeah. If you're a billionaire who wants to make sure that nobody who is currently alive will ever see any of your money, um, uh. it's a good animal to leave your estate to. And then the other thing that appealed to me, I mean, I guess I can, I can go on for a long time, but uh, the, the two things about Tuatara that I, I find completely fascinating. One, um, they don't have teeth. That's how primitive they are. They just have bones. Their bones stick out of their gums, and that's how they chew. Um, like, they never, th th they're like one of the last terrestrial vertebrates that eat, that chew food that don't have teeth. Uh, secondly, the other thing that, uh, from the, like a novel perspective, the thing that appealed, one of the things that appealed to me about them was that even though they haven't changed body forms like at all in 150 million years, which is weird and unusual, um, they have the fastest rate of molecular evolution of any animal observed in the world. Um, so they are experiencing molecular mutation ex extremely fast by. Um, by contemporary evolutionary standards. There's lots of thoughts why this might be. It might be that in the past, molecular evolution was just a lot faster, which would explain, you know, why we have so much uh, diversity of life on Earth or might explain part of it. Um, but there's also lots of other theories about it. But I thought, like, that reflected something about Asia. You know, like, here's this person, and to look at her, she's not... Um, you know, she, she, she looks fairly, you know, average, but there's this, you know, teeming, uh, teeming infinity within her. And uh, so, too, with the Tuatara. Awesome. Um, well, that will, uh, we'll, we'll wrap things up there. Thank you so much, John. All right. Was a, I'm glad I got to talk about Tuatara. Yeah, oh, me so too. <laughs> Thank you for the great questions. It's so, it's so, uh, such an honor to have, um, the book picked, and uh, thank, thank you all for reading it and, and for reading it so thoughtfully. I, I really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, all, all right, right, everybody. So we'll be, we'll be back next week with our, uh, our next conference call. We're going to be talking to Megan Garber, um, both about the piece that she wrote recently about Vietnam and memory, and also about all the incredible reporting that she's been doing on sexual harassment. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for, for tuning in today and for also being so, so open and, and willing to discuss uh, these issues that can be hard to talk about. Um, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.